Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with Jonathan Larson, writer and retired clergy of the Mennonite Church. Jonathan discusses his belief in nonviolent living. So let's speak now with Jonathan Larson. A belief in nonviolent living. So there are lots of words for this out there. Within the group I belong to, sometimes the word defenseless is used. More commonly, say, in the Gandhian tradition, it might be uh, pacifism. And, of course, in the Sanskrit, uh, the, the word that describes this is ahimsa, which is living without doing harm to others. The practice and belief of nonviolence towards others. Mm-hmm. Yep. On a scale from one to seven, how confident are you that this belief is true? Well, I, I would say probably somewhere in the five or six. Fairly confident, but not extremely confident. Yeah, and, and I say that because it's easy to spill over into ideology which becomes often tyrannical and absolute in a way that prevents dialogue or discussion, which I think of as the basis of nonviolent living. If it's not possible to sit down in a personal exchange with another person, nonviolence becomes really difficult. And ideology or some absolute belief that is not capable of of discussion, of being probed or questioned, that becomes hugely problematic. And so I think there must be a willingness to do that. And and so that's why I say, you know, maybe a five or six, because I, I think that all of us are capable of misunderstanding or of error in some way, and we can all benefit from interaction and discussion and dialogue. Uh, with others. On a scale from one to seven, how important is it for you to believe in true things? Well, it is important. I think especially in our time where there's a discussion about truth that's abroad, not just in societies here in North America, but I, I think more broadly around the world, there is a great hunger and search for for what is reliably true. And and I think that has to be important. We, we all have to hunger and thirst for, for something like that. Yeah. So you don't have to assign a number value, but it's fairly high. It's, yeah. It's, a pretty, it's, yeah. it's important mm-hmm. for you. Yes. How do we know that your belief is true? 
Well, one way I think a belief becomes true is that it self-verifies along the way. That is, if you're prepared to live by that truth, it will affirm itself to you, and it will produce the results, or in spiritual language, it will produce the fruit that is satisfying, that leads to, leads to contentment, and ultimately to, to peace, which uh, is the subject that's somewhat under dis- discussion here between us. I think it's, it's really important to live by something which is dependably true. And So if I understand you correctly, it seems that the primary reason that you believe this belief is that it is self-affirming. And a quick thought experiment, just so I understand where you're coming from, Tommy is sitting next to you, mm-hmm. and Tommy pretty much has the opposite belief. He believes in, instead of nonviolence, he believes in violence. Mm-hmm. And... When he practices violence, it's self-affirming. He feels good about it, and uh, he's much happier, and he can live a more fulfilling life for him when he practices violence, and that is self-affirming. So is self-affirmation a reliable way to know whether a belief is true? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it actually brings us to a fork in the road in the discussion. There is a self-affirming that comes from a particular individual, a personal experience or an individual experience of affirmation in following a certain path. The picture shifts radically when you begin to consider now not a single person, but rather a community, so maybe beginning with a family, and then a neighborhood, and then beyond that, you know, a larger community, and then we go on, of course, to nations and and much larger groups. So something that may seem self-affirming in the individual view will then have to be tested at these successive larger levels. Uh, Maybe if you give me an Example, just so I can understand. Right. Uh Right. So let's say uh, I'm a gunslinger in the Old West, and I am accustomed to packing heat for a whole variety of reasons. That may seem self-affirming at some individual level. But finally, when everybody in town uh, begins to pack heat like you, what kind of society and community flows from this? And can we say that the fruit of this belief has produced what we, what we want in such a community? So that belief really has to be taken into that larger setting to be verified or, or to be grasped fully. And in my case, inasmuch as, as I, am, I belong to the Mennonite community of faith, we place an extremely high value on that community experience. And the individual belief is set in that community and must be tested and, and to some extent shared in that larger setting. So if I may steal me in your belief, possibly what you're saying is, is that a primary reason why you believe the belief is that 
it's more society affirming or group affirming than it is individually affirming. Right. And as we're discovering, even in something like the threat to the well-being of the world because of climate change, that is something that will not only affect, but possibly be a destiny for us all. That is a shared destiny. So to live individually in a context where an entire planet is at risk, to pursue some personal interest is very quickly going to break down and fail to produce the fruit we want in the end for for the community. If we are living in a community of people that are basically nonviolent mm-hmm. or practice nonviolence, which I think maybe you're telling me Mennonites practice, is that correct? Yes, it's their aspiration. My understanding is that there are likely a number of faith traditions or non-faith traditions or just a number of traditions in general that practice or adhere to the idea of nonviolence. How is your tradition different from those traditions, mm-hmm. or is it? It, it? it has broad sharing of understanding with these many other traditions, whether it's background uh, belief and practice of Quakers or of other Anabaptist groups. Mennonites are considered part of a large Anabaptist family that are committed to, to peacemaking. For Mennonites, th- this is rooted in an understanding of the figure, the teaching, the work of, of Jesus. It finds its center there. And the way it relates for me is asking, can I in any way imagine Jesus as a practitioner of violence? Is it even possible to conceive of this? And the answer, as far as I can see, is irrevocably no. It seems like now that we have two reasons why you believe in the belief. One is the societal implications of where you find yourself Mm -hmm. believing that belief with other people. And the second reason is your understanding of Jesus's life and how he lived his life. Yes. Of those two reasons, what would you say is the more important reason of why you believe that belief? I would find it very hard to choose because on, on well, one... Fine. I'm not saying this is the case, but if you woke up tomorrow morning and conceptualized Jesus as an entirely different figure, figure mm-hmm. would you still have this belief or would you have a reduction in the belief? I, I think at that point, I would have to part ways with this inspiring figure or, or center point. So it seems like this belief is important regardless of how strongly you believe in Jesus. Well, I would very quickly run out of reasons to follow Jesus if that path led me into bloodshed and warfare and harm to others of of all kinds. I mean, it, it stretches so far across the spectrum. Even things like poverty and racism, these are all expressions of harm that, that come to others and harm in which we somehow participate. If a figure leads me deeper into those things, then I, I cannot help but think I would recoil from this path. 
So then it seems like we're more to the first reason of why you believe the belief, because I think what you're telling me is if you learn some information today that Jesus was a different person, then you'd still have the belief, but you would see Jesus as less central to the belief. And so the first reason of, and maybe we can discuss this further, that it's better for us as a whole to have this belief than not to have this belief. Yes, I I feel a certain fellowship with those who follow a path of nonviolent living, even if they are not committed followers of Jesus, which which I am. If Fred's sitting next to you, and let's just say Fred is an atheist, and Fred practices nonviolence and believes in nonviolence interventions and those kinds of things, would we say that Fred is having a consistent belief? Let let me approach your question this way. The scriptures say, the New Testament, but the Old Testament too, that where we encounter deep love and these qualities, these spiritual qualities that of which peacemaking is is a part, that we recognize these things come from God. They come from that great source of life that lies at the heart of, of everything. And that makes me kin to such a person. Uh, and while I do not understand fully how the world is divided or where judgments are made about ultimately, you know, where the lines are drawn, I'm content to leave that to someone with greater insight than I have, and I will happily partner with someone who shares these aspirations, recognizing that they come from the same place. They come from God. I, I, I think that's important. If Fred shares the belief that you share, if Fred practices nonviolence, believes that the world would be better if there was no violence in the world and, and strives to do that in his life and the way he interacts with other people, mm-hmm. let's say Fred lives the kind of life that many people would aspire to live, mm-hmm. but maybe the only difference with Fred is that for whatever reason, Fred thinks that this belief comes from within or from with his parents or who knows. Right. And you think this belief comes from a higher being. It sounds like you're telling me. Yes. Yes. Can both be true or are both true? They they can be. And uh, I'll, I'll use an example actually from the gospels. After the resurrection of Jesus in the account of the Gospels, that time of year that we are actually approaching now with Easter just days away, in the aftermath, when Jesus meets with his followers, there is a certain figure named Thomas in that circle of followers uh, who is absent initially, but who comes to meet Jesus afterward, having already expressed complete disbelief in the fact that he might have come back from, from the grave. And in that encounter, finally, where Thomas meets Jesus, uh, and Thomas is persuaded, of course, then that uh, it's true, the very thing he disbelieved was true. 
Then Jesus says to Thomas, You believe because you have seen. Happy are those who believe and who have never seen. So Jesus seems to be offering some kind of blessing to those who confess that they do not have those eyes of faith that allow them to verify this this thing that has happened, but who continue kind of in the follower group. I had a, a really good friend in the Kalahari, where my wife and I were working, who was in this very situation. He said to me one day, Jonathan, I I wish I could believe all the things you believe. And I'm sure he was thinking about all the paraphernalia of belief, you know, (laughs) whether Christian or or other, uh, the virgin birth and all of those things, you know, which uh, the miracles. He said, I wish I could believe all the things that you believe, but I cannot because I'm a modern person and, and incapable of such belief. And then he said this, but I have decided that I will live as though I did believe. So it seems like he was living a positive life without the belief. Yes. And when you think of it, that's sort of what faith is, right? Faith is some undergirding of something that you're not capable of yourself, right? Well, where I'm having a little bit of confusion is that if you could live a positive life and a nonviolent life, assuming that that is what we should strive for, if you can live that sort of life and have your belief and also live that sort of life and not have that belief, which you've seen people do, mm-hmm. why the belief? Right. Well, I think, in a way, having this, for me, having this trust in this figure of Jesus as worthy of following is sort of cheating, in a way. Cheating in the sense that it's easy when you have a picture that your imagination can work with, a picture to follow, Jesus is often figured as leaving footprints, and the followers follow those those footprints. It is much harder to live that life without the footprints and without that figure. And I think this relates to what you were talking about with faith. You're telling me by faith you mean trust. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And not trying to put words in your mouth. Yeah. If you mean yeah. something different yeah. by faith, please let me yeah. know. So I think you're telling me that it is easier to live this life of nonviolence if you can trust in a figure such as Jesus as opposed to living this sort of life based on not this trust. Yes, uh, winging it, if you, if you want to use a, a term like that. Uh, and from my side, and I, this may sound condescending in a way, uh, from my side, I'm suspecting that there is a presence in that person's life which permits them to live in this manner, which may not have a name, right? May not have an assigned sort of identity. I think I see where you're coming from. And back to my 
earlier example with Fred, who practices a pro-social life, yes, and he doesn't have that belief. Mm-hmm. And let's take this one step further. Let's say he has this belief, and it works for him and his and the people he surrounds himself with. And when he thinks of people who are religious and have this belief, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be condescending, but he thinks that people who have faith and believe in this belief are practicing good behaviors, but for reasons other than what they think that they are practicing those behaviors for. Right. That people who have faith have illusions about the reasons for their behavior. So it seems like in this situation, both Fred and you are very similar in the behavior and the practice, but not the reasons ascribed to the practice. So I'm trying to get further down to the reliability of the belief of what it is that both you or Fred is driving the belief, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would be presumptuous of me to say, from within Fred's own personal experience, what are the things that have inspired the kind of behavior and practice which is visible to all the rest of us, you know, who, who live with Fred. He, he, he would possibly have his own account of that, you know, where that comes from. Maybe his upbringing with his parents or traditions from, from his own past of, a, of whatever they are. Um, and I'm really happy to learn about that and to experience that and in some cases to bless that, you know, if I can, to say, wow, that, that's such a beautiful thing. And it... it we don't have to have this background identity to make common cause. Sure. That what Jesus said at one point is, by your fruit, you will be known. That those things that are manifest in your life, that's who you are, or that's, that explains you as, as a person. Well, let me ask you this question then. It seems like, in some sense, faith is driving this belief. If you didn't have faith that drove this belief, Mm. what in your mind would be the second best reason to have the belief? That it it produces a livable world. So the second best reason is that... It's a practical one. From a utilitarian standpoint, people are happier, people... Live longer, obviously. Yeah. There's less violence. And it's just a nicer world to live in, sure. almost by definition. <clears throat> and I think someone like Fred would get that. And I think he might ask, why the faith then? Why not just have, simply for a self-affirming reasons yeah. for the society, Yes. why not just do just, it? You're right. And, and I would have no argument uh, with with Fred at that point, because I think in the end, faith is a gift. It comes as a gift. And, and by faith, we still mean trust? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the capacity to trust. The thing about this path, as I see it, the, the path that is of living nonviolently, is that it is a costly path in many ways. How so? Well, if, if you look at, 
at the prophets of the Old Testament, if you look at Gandhi, you know, if you look at Martin Luther King, if you look at, at these figures who have appealed to us to lay down our arms and to engage with each other, they have all paid a terrible price for having pursued that path. And even today, I think those who seek this, who desire it, come under suspicion uh, as having ulterior motives. Maybe they're seen as threatening vested power and in some cases challenging the foundations of of society. Uh, That if we call into question the trillions of dollars that are being spent around the world today in acquiring arms of the most destructive kinds, you will find yourself soon facing off against those who have committed their lives to the pursuit of that enterprise. And that will likely not be an easy encounter and may ultimately require some ultimate cost from you. Yeah, and I do think I see where you're coming from. And to be clear, I'm not, in my mind, challenging the belief. For example, let's suppose that I believe I'm a billionaire. Mm-hmm. I'm not a billionaire, but I believe it. Okay. And because I believe it, I do lots of wonderful things in my life. I give money to people. I am a happier person. I'm nicer to everyone. The belief has definitely helped me mm-hmm. and helped the people around me. But what does that say about the reasons behind why I have You've belief? done that. And probably an insightful person. I mean, you, you yourself uh, are a, a neuropsychologist, someone who probes the kind of depths of, of the human mind and the heart. Someone of wisdom might say to such a person, you were a billionaire entrusted with unimaginable riches, but not the kind you put in a bank. And that what happened in your life was the fact that you are endowed in this way, in a way that you did not actually fully grasp or imagine, but that is present in your life and which has released into the world the good things which you have done. So you're saying that I am a billionaire, just not a billionaire in the way that I believe that I'm a billionaire. Thank you. (laughs) No, that may seem like a preposterous thing to say. But in fact, the, the great spiritual teachers of the past have always approached us in this very way, that the things that we conventionally understand about ourselves or others are suddenly thrown into some other kind of relief. And we see that they might be true, but in a way we did not expect. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think I see where you're coming from. And I, and I, and I suspect this relates back to faith. And let me ask you this. Let's suppose you and I mm-hmm. are crossing a rickety bridge over a ravine. Yes. Like in the Amazon rainforest or somewhere. Yeah. And we want to decide whether this bridge should be crossed. Mm -hmm. We'd like to cross this bridge. Right. It seems like a good thing to do. And on the other side is 
a reward for us and for everybody, right. for the whole world. And okay. we want to. Yeah. Let's say the the practice for everyone of nonviolence is on the other side of this rickety bridge. Mm-hmm. But we want to know whether this bridge is safe to cross. Would it be better to trust that this bridge should be crossed, that we just trust that it should? Mm-hmm. Should we have faith to mm-hmm. cross it and right. start crossing it? Yes. What if we had more tangible evidence that this bridge was safe to cross mm-hmm. in the sense that we were given engineering diagrams of the bridge? Okay. Mm-hmm. Is trust enough to cross the bridge or should we ask for more? You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. We continue our conversation with Jonathan Larson, writer and retired clergy of the Mennonite Church, as he discusses his belief in nonviolent living, coming up after this short break. Hi, this is Mark Solomon, host of Being Reasonable. Do you like the show and want to help? Please subscribe to Being Reasonable as a podcast and maybe even write us a review. Thanks. What if we had more tangible evidence that this bridge was safe to cross mm-hmm. in the sense that we were given engineering diagrams of the bridge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is trust enough to cross the bridge or should we ask for more? Right. I think the answer to that, that a definitive answer would only come, maybe not from the architectural drawings and all the things that might tell us in theory, uh, whether this bridge was was viable or or not, there would step forward at such a moment a person of faith who was prepared to walk that bridge to the far side to confirm its viability, or in the event that it failed, to show that it was not. Now, either way, that person whoever that is, who has taken on this task or calling, has served the community in disregard of his or her own physical being. I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. Well, I think so. But I think you're telling me that we're using one person in the community to trust in the bridge, saying nothing about whether we should actually trust in the bridge. Right. And and this is known in communities of faith as witness or testimony, right? That there are those individuals at key moments. Would you the- rather use your friend Peter in this case? Yes. Or would you rather have some engineering drawings to look at? Uh, I I think I think. If, if, if I were in such a situation, I would be glad to tread that bridge myself, uh, apart from, you know, confirmation of, of, of what the drawings might say. Uh, because whatever condition that bridge was in when the drawings were made and it was constructed, bridges have a way of aging and... And um, infrastructure, as we know in this country, you know, <laughs> it comes. So you wouldn't even be interested in seeing the drawing. Well, I think that would be not be a bad place to begin, and maybe we could say that the drawings 
are the testimony of, of say, scripture, right, that says this building, this bridge uh, was constructed in a way that will prove uh, itself. But finally, it does take a person to walk that bridge to demonstrate its viability, its strength, its worthiness, if, if you will, for the rest of the community. And, and this is the witness or the testimony offered by people of faith every day. It should be. That's, that's not a bad analogy to think of when thinking of the meaning of this day, whatever that day is, um, when I rise to, to meet the day, uh, to think of it as an opportunity to walk a bridge that may mean goodness and health, perhaps even rescue. It sounds like that you're saying to trust that something is true is more admirable than having evidence for that thing being true. Yes. Evidence is great. Even when reading the scriptures, for example, if we take that to be the blueprint, right? Or the, I, I, I hate to make the scriptures think, to think of them as a blueprint is, is maybe not so helpful. But uh, to think of that as a starting point of understanding what is at stake in this circumstance and how am I to understand this moment and, and opportunity or whatever it is that lies in front of me. But ultimately, it must be a lived thing if it's to have viability with the larger society that's eyes trained on the bridge, you know, wondering, is it going to hold? Is that going to take us across? Do we reach the other side on that structure? This friend of mine pictures it this way. He's, he's, not, he's not a person of faith, but he says that even for him every day, is a test plot, like on a farm. Seeds have been planted. And the farmer and the community, maybe in the larger sense, is watching that test plot. Which are the seeds that actually sprout and come to life? And ultimately, what do they produce? Um, that's what the world wants to see, not what the catalog you know, of the seed company says about the viability of those seeds. They actually want to see it live. Well, maybe if I made that example more personal so I can understand more fully where you're coming from, if it was someone who was near and dear to you and that person was about to cross that rickety bridge, cross the ravine, yes. would you want that person to trust that that bridge is safe without evidence or have evidence that that bridge is safe to cross based on, let's just say, engineering drawings or what have you. Right. Well, I'm the kind of person and my family will attest to this, that it has made itself manifest in various places along the way, that I am the kind of person who is prepared to run risks on behalf of others. If someone is going to cross that bridge, someone who is near or dear to me, my impulse would be to say, wait, let me cross the bridge first. Let me see if I can prove it, and then you can cross afterward. However, in such cases, what may well be happening 
is this person who has set out to cross the bridge without any assurance of what may happen, is crossing the bridge in their own kind of moment of crucible sort of testing faith themselves. And that this gift in life of living by faith will only come to them by crossing that bridge without the sort of backup uh, assurances, you know, that it will all end well. So you also don't want to deprive someone of the exercise of their faith as a way of growing and of maybe bursting through some some confining space into something broad and beautiful that lies beyond it, which is only accessible when you exercise faith. It would be wrong to, you know, to interfere with that if that's what's happening. If you didn't have faith, would you be a different person? I, I think in some respects, I would be the same. I would be the person that my parents raised um, in the sort of outward sense of, of this. Uh, we all take on the qualities of our families. Are you um, telling me that you'd still be that kind of person, the person who would take on that risk and cross that bridge without faith? Well, that, that would perhaps not be, you know, part of who I might otherwise have been. So, um, you, so you would be. Yes, and I, and I think I, I think this impulse to be willing to take some risks on behalf of others and myself arise from my interest in this person of Jesus. Not just the person Jesus was, but the kind of work that he set about to do in giving himself to others, essentially, that that might be a way of, of summing it up. If I had taken another path of 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 living good goodness out, that would have been well short of where I find myself today. So, so I wouldn't quarrel with that person, but So you think I you am. would be different in some yes. ways. I think you're telling yes. me that if you didn't have your faith, you'd be less Selfless. Yes, I would I would be less assured of the landmark I'm steering by. That's clearer to me now because of my faith. I think, and you're not the first person I've talked to who has described faith to me in this way. And I genuinely want to know because it does genuinely confuse me some. It seems that many people put faith on a very high pedestal. And if we describe faith as merely trust, I'm trying to understand why is it on such a high pedestal when people say that I trust something is true, even though I don't have evidence for that thing being true. And we tell ourselves that that is a higher level to be achieved. Am I wrong? Well, I, I'm not entirely sure now that placing faith on that high pedestal that you're describing is still something that's shared by 
our times, our culture. It seems like it's an aspiration to achieve, though. Okay. That's what, that's what I'm okay. saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that we put that as on a pedestal. I'm sorry if I didn't say that correctly. On a pedestal of as something to be achieved. That mm-hmm. we should trust in some things, even though there might even be a dearth of evidence for that thing being true. So the the way the the scriptures describe faith, it comes across this way in in the book of Hebrews, where it says, "Faith is the evidence of things unseen." How do we have evidence for things not seen? Seen, yes, uh, and. That evidence is not available to us or accessible to us. If if evidence, we are sorry, I'm just ahead. trying. To, I'm just trying to think it through. Yeah. If evidence is not available to us or accessible to us, is it evidence? Is that evidence? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, the 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 evidence that most of us look for is is often understood in a sort of scientific or transactional or or logical sort of way we are in the end children of the enlightenment right which means that our thought processes our our worldview the, the things that we base our lives upon are bounded by um, by reason, are bounded by s- syllogistic sort of thinking. Um, and you- that has brought us huge rewards. I mean, shedding the superstitions of the past, shedding oppressive cultural practices, I mean, all sorts of things. We have benefited from... um, Are you telling me that your belief isn't based in reason? I I think in the end, it, it, it goes beyond reason in this sense, that... Faith is a confession that beyond reason there are mysteries in human life. There are mysteries that surround us, uh, which we cannot fully account for by syllogism or by logic or sheer reason. If we can't account for something, Mm -hmm. and there's many things in this world that we can't account for, I'm trying to understand how that gets us to then we should then go ahead and believe in that thing. Right. So there is evidence that a certain belief will produce fruit, which results in communities that are in harmony with one another, families that find peace together, nations that experience the goodness of being neighbor to one another, those are all forms of evidence that we would all gladly accept and that are in a way measurable even, right? We can 
sociology and 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 various uh, other tools will mm-hmm. help us to measure right. these things. But beyond that, we ask questions, those larger questions of of meaning, of why I am here, of what is the purpose of my walking the earth, mm-hmm. um, which no syllogism will help you, I think, to fully answer. Perhaps in some immediate sense, it, there may be some way to scientifically answer that question. But I think ultimately, we're left gazing into the night sky and asking ourselves, what is that great and powerful thing which lies beyond me, which I am incapable of grasping or holding or understanding? As another thought experiment, and you might have heard this, if I believe that Buddy Holly, Mm. the singer... Beautiful. Yeah. The singer died and... (laughs) In the he, plane crash. Right. He yeah. the plane crash. I believe that he rose from the dead and he's a god now. Okay. Buddy Holly is a god and I believe it. And I have faith in that belief. The way I'm thinking about this is that if my belief in Buddy Holly mm. was wrong, it's still helpful, but yeah. if it was incorrect, yes, I'm not sure thinking about my own belief, just personally, Yes that I would have a manner to find that out. Right. Okay. Um, th- you have set out there um, the beginnings of such a stirring conversation. But, and, and, and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, right. but what I'm saying, I think, is should, and maybe we should, let me know what you think, please, yeah. Yeah. should we believe in anything? At all, uh-huh. yeah. That can't be shown to be false if it's false, right? Because if it can't be shown to be incorrect if it's incorrect, and it could yeah. be correct, but if mm. it, if it's incorrect and it can't be shown to be incorrect, right? Then how could we possibly know that it's true? Right. This question essentially makes us moderns as we are, children of the Greeks have been raised kind of within the confines of geometry and logic, the rules of rhetoric, uh, of math, um, which have evolved over time into science and the amazing grasp, the scientific grasp and method, which characterizes so much of who we are and, and, and how we live. There is this question that lingers for those of us who are children of the Greeks. And that question is, is there anything that lies beyond human consciousness? That is the things that we can perceive, the things that that we can take in as human beings and come to some account of. The great gift of the, of the Greeks was that we should be observant and analyze and take apart to understand, if we can, what's out there in this uh, created world. But the question that the Greeks never fully answered, and which I think their myths were an attempt to answer, is that there is a great deal that lies beyond. 
that inquiring, sharp, incisive mind that takes things apart to understand them and masters them in the end. But those myths, the stories that the Greeks told, arise from some part in, in, in the Greek heart that says, you know, as well as we understand things, as well as we have mastered geometry and math and logic and all these things, there is something yet that lies beyond this, which we are grasping for. And their attempt at that were the myths, mm -hmm. the Greek yeah. myths, yes. which was their religions at the time. Yes. That was their way of grasping at things they had a hint of being true, but didn't know what was exactly true. Yes. And I would imagine it could be said for us at this time as well, that there are many things way outside of our human comprehension at this time. Right. So would the default position be, then I'm going to believe in faith, or I'm going to withhold my belief in any of this right. until more evidence comes along to shape me in the sense of what is objectively true. Right. Okay. There is a story told by one of the Desert Fathers that addresses somewhat this question that, that you're, you're raising, that a disciple, um, a struggling disciple, came to the master teacher and said, how, how can I find God? And the master responded by saying, come with me. He led this person down to the river. And he took this disciple roughly by the shoulders and drove him down into the water and held him there. As he thrashed and struggled, I mean, for breath, he, he was... He, he felt now that his life itself was, was in jeopardy. And suddenly he broke free and, you know, burst uh, into the open air, gasping for, for breath. And then the teacher told him, when you desire God as much as you desire that breath, God will be found by you. So what he's saying, what this teacher was implying, is that, in the human heart, there is something which craves more than syllogisms can offer. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week.
Now that's what I call funky. Enjoy funk. Nothing is what something used to be 
guess it's better than something Something's better than nothing Something is what something is to be Guess it's better than something Something's better than nothing Something is what something is to be Guess it's better than something Something's better